Uh, a pastor peer of mine tells a story about a man by the name of Bill White. Uh, pastor Chris met Bill one Sunday when Bill came into church, and, and uh, it was, it was kind of rough at the get-go. Bill wasn't really sure what he believed about God. He wasn't sure that God loved him, that God cared about him, that God was, was fair to him. Uh, Bill was on the, the poorer side of, of the equation, didn't have a whole lot of skills. It was kind of, uh, we might say, socially awkward. And, and, uh, and, and Bill just, just wasn't sure that, that, that God was still with him, thought maybe God had abandoned him. But, but Pastor Chris saw something in Bill, saw the image of, of God in Bill, and, uh, and so thought it would be worthwhile to invest in Bill. And, and as Pastor Chris tells the story, over a couple of years and, and long conversations and many times of prayer, Bill began to soften. And uh, eventually Bill came to the point where he, uh, where he again uh, said to Jesus Christ, you can have all of me. And uh, he began to have a warm, a warm experience with the Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Bill began to be grateful. Instead of looking around and seeing that others were more blessed material and financially than he, Bill began to thank God for what he had and figure out a way that he could give back. And Bill didn't have a whole lot of skills, didn't have a whole lot of talents, but one thing he could do was make coffee. And so every Sunday morning at 6 a.m., Bill would come to their church and he would make coffee for the congregation. And then his, uh, his uh, typical routine was to make coffee, and then at 8.30 he'd go to worship service, and, and then he'd, he would go home. So he began to give back, and, and, and uh, Bill didn't make much money, but he began to, to tithe and, and to look everywhere he could for every opportunity to bless someone who didn't have the blessings that he had. And during this time, as Bill was growing and beginning to serve and, and express his gratitude, the Lord laid on Bill's heart a burden for his son and daughter who didn't yet know Jesus Christ. And so Bill began to pray that his son and daughter would not only come to know Jesus Christ, but, but that he would have the blessing of worshiping with them in the same church. And he began to pray for his brother, James. Um, Bill's brother, James, was to say that he was antagonistic towards Jesus Christ would be an understatement. James hated the church, didn't want anything to do with Christians, but Bill began to pray for him. As, uh, as my, my friend, Pastor um, Chris, tells the story, one Sunday morning, 6 a.m., like usual, Bill came in, he made the coffee, he went to 8.30 worship, and he went home. This was in the middle of 2014. And uh, as he went home after worship that day, he sat in his favorite chair at home, and a couple hours later, breathed his last. Alone, with all of his unanswered prayer for the salvation of his children and his brother. And when I first heard this story from Pastor Chris, I'm just going, God, what in the world? You turned this man's life upside down. He was the only one that was praying for the salvation of his son and his daughter and his, and his brother. And, and now you've taken him off the scene. Who's going to pray for, for these? Who's, who, who's going to stand in the gap for his family members? You know, it's hard to come to that point when you realize that you've prayed and prayed and prayed. And not only has God not answered your prayers, but as you look at it, it seems like he's doing the exact opposite of that for which you're pleading. It's one thing to hear that in the, person, in the story of another person. That's a whole other thing when you go, you know what, that's me. 
For years I've been praying that God would intervene. For, for years I've been begging God to take this condition for me, from me. For years I've been praying that my, my child would come back to the Lord. And it just seems like he's not doing it. This, I would suggest, is an area of surrender. That crossroad where we have to surrender the desire for God to work when and where and how we want him to work. We've been talking about surrender for the last several weeks, and we've been looking at the story of men and women throughout Scripture, various stories, uh, men and women who came to intersections where they realized, I can continue to go the way I've been going, and I'll continue to get what I've been getting, or I can wave the white flag, and I can surrender to God, I can move in His direction, and I can watch what He's going to do with it. This this area of surrender, this crossroads where we come to the point where we say, you know what, God, I don't know why you're not doing what I asked you to do, what I want you to do, what I expect you to do, but I'm going to let you do what you want to do, is perhaps one of the hardest surrenders in life. But when we do, when we choose to surrender our expectations of how and when God will work, we get a front row seat to what he's going to do. And usually he works in a way that we could never imagine or expect. And we get to see firsthand what happens. Today we're going to look at a Bible story about three uh, Jewish or Hebrew young men. Uh, they go by several, a couple names in Scripture. We most commonly know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Although I've got to admit, probably my favorite names for them come from the world-famous theologian, Bob the Tomato. He calls them Rack, Shack, and Benny. Just flows off the tongue a little bit easier. Um, you may know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or, or you may not. You may be a little rusty on it. It, it. It's written for us in Daniel chapter 3. If you want to take your text and open that up, um, you'll be able to see the chapter in its entirety. We're not going to read the entire chapter. It's not printed on your notes today. Um, so I would, I would invite you to open your text, and uh, you'll want to make some notes there. i, I got to confess that this is one of the stories as a child growing up that I heard all the time. It makes for a good flannel graph story. It's really an exciting story. I mean, if you know it, you're already going, yeah, I know that story. Um, I heard it a lot, but if I'm to be honest, there's a whole lot of things about this story that just never made any sense to me. I never fully understood, like, why are some of these, I, it just, it, like, there's a whole bunch of blanks, and, and someone needed to fill in the blanks or connect the dots for me. And so what I'd like to do as we work through this story today is um, kind of tell you some of the things that have confused me about this story, maybe fill in some blanks for you, maybe not, maybe you're, like, way ahead of this, you've had better teachers and, and all this stuff, you're going to be like, I can't believe Pastor Earl didn't know that. Why do we pay this guy again? Um, what I like to do is work through the story and kind of fill in some of those blanks. And, and one of the first things I never understood as a kid is why in the world were three Jewish dudes hanging around Babylon in the first place? I mean, it just seems like you're going to get in trouble when you're somewhere you don't belong. It just kind of makes sense. We've talked before about how the nation of Israel kind of had a little civil war and split into two, uh, two separate nations. We had the, the nation called Israel, which were the northern ten tribes, and then the southern two tribes became the nation of Judah. Do you remember any of this? Does any of this sound familiar? Okay, good. I, I got some nods. Great. Hey, we're doing a good job here, Pastor Joel. Uh, Judah had the national capital, the city of 
Jerusalem. Well, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched on Jerusalem and basically set it on fire. Um, he you know, raped, pillaged, murder. He took the city captive, marched into the temple, took all the valuable items that he could out of it, burnt the temple down, and on his way out of town, uh, took as many captives with him as he could. Now, this is pretty typical for warfare in this day and age. The, the conquering army would march into a city that they want to subjugate. They would do all the things I've mentioned, and then they would take a select portion of captives back with them. The idea was they looked for the, the best and the brightest, the, the young men who were on the track to success. Uh, maybe they were rulers in that city, or, or they were you know, the top of their graduating classes from the university. And they would take them back to the, the capital of their nation, their empire, and they would re-educate them in the ways of the, the conquering people. So in this case, Babylon. And then what they would do is with the, the, the gaps that were left from these people they deported, they would import other people, uh, perhaps who were native Babylonians or who were from other places that had been conquered, other people groups, and they'd, they'd bring them into the city and kind of create a melting pot. The whole goal was to make sure that this conquered city became Babylonian and to take the best, best and the brightest of that culture and to educate them in, in what the conquering empire, Babylon in this case, believed was the, the best education going. So King Nebuchadnezzar took, uh, Scripture mentors, mentions four names that we recognize, most commonly Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, took them and a bunch of others back to Babylon in order to rewire their brains, re-educate them in the ways of the Babylonians. So this explains why there were three Jewish boys hanging out in Babylon in Daniel chapter 3. As we start uh, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has built a giant gold image. As a matter of fact, let's read about it in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, six, uh, image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, again, as a kid, I'm always going, what's with this? I mean, I don't, it's not in my experience that the president sets up gold images and then makes everyone bow down and worship it. And so I never understood as a kid, why, why a gold statue in the middle of Babylon, wherever this, this, this Dura plane is? Well, interestingly enough, we kind of have a hint or an answer to that in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we won't go back and read it, but the long and short of it is that the king had a dream, and in his dream there was a, a statue. The statue had five layers. Each of the layers represented a kingdom. His kingdom was the head, and the head was made out of gold. And so apparently King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and that's what inspired him to set up this, this golden image in the plain of Dura. And, uh, and this golden image, probably gold-plated, was huge. By our measurements today, probably 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. That's about as tall as an eight-story building. Are you kind of starting to get a kind of a glimpse of how massive this thing was? Taller than, than our church building, certainly. And, uh, and so it's, it's built here on the plain of Dura. It's got a 10-to-1 height-to-width height ratio, which is kind of an awkward shape. Okay, it's way taller than it is wider. And so what was it? 
Archaeologists and theologians suggest that this is probably an obelisk. Have you ever heard of an obelisk before? Have you ever been to Washington, D.C. and seen a Washington Monument? Then you've seen an obelisk. That's basically what an obelisk is. And, and these things were all over the ancient Near East. As a matter of fact, let me show you a couple pictures here. Um, these are obelisks that date, that date back to this time frame. Uh, the one on the right is the white obelisk of Ashurbanipal I, and the one on the left is the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. I know those names are just wonderful, aren't they? Feel free to use them. I'd love to see, I'd love to dedicate a kid someday named Ashurbanipal. So these things are all over the ancient Near East. They're all over antiquity. And, and the reason that they would build these obelisks is this was a monument to the emperor's greatness. And so these obelisks aren't necessarily like the Washington Monument that's you know, just kind of tall and grand. They actually would paint or carve depictions of the emperor's greatness all over these obelisks. Let me just give you a couple examples, and then we're going to move on. These um, I'm going to show you two. They both come from Shalmaneser's um, obelisk. This one is a, a, a depiction. You can kind of see the picture from where you're at of some king. I wrote it down here. I don't even know. Oh, there we go. King uh, Sua, king of Gilzanu. Never heard of him or there. But that's an image of him bowing down to Shalmaneser and paying tribute. But this next one, I, I'm fascinated by this next one. This is a picture of King Jehu of Israel paying tribute to King Shalmaneser. And so the next time you have someone who says, you know what, the Bible's all fantasy and fairy tale and myth, you have yet another anchor point to say, well, it's a pretty good fairy tale then because it's rooted in history because archaeologists have actually found a depiction of a king talked about in the Bible and events spoken of in Holy Scripture. So um, there's a good chance that it was an obelisk that Nebuchadnezzar built or there's a chance that it perhaps looked more like this. This used to stand in Ferdo Square in Baghdad. Of course, that's not Nebuchadnezzar. Who's that? Yeah, absolutely, Saddam Hussein. The long and short of it is that we really, we really don't know what he built. He built some kind of image that was gold-plated. It was either an obelisk or it was perhaps a statue of himself, although that doesn't really seem to fit the height-to-width ratio. And then he made the people bow before it. Now, again, as a kid, um, I'm going, how in the world... Do you make a whole nation bow before a statue or an image that you've built? Well, let's see what happens. Verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar then summoned the satraps. Let me interpret some of these terms for you because they don't make sense to us. Satraps would be like governors of various provinces, or we may say states, okay? So this is like a state governor. He summoned the satraps, the prefects, those would be like military commanders, the governors, which is a word that we know, but um, these would be more like mayors in, in modern-day parlance, uh, the advisors, the treasurers, the, the judges, these would be like local judges, the magistrates, those would be like national Supreme Court judges, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he set up. So he builds this image, and I used to think instructed like the whole country to bow down to this image, but really what we see here is he called all of the government rulers from the area and, uh, you know, who would have been high up in government ruling to come and to bow down to this image. 
So based on what we know so far from Daniel's chapter 1 and 2, that would have included Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar found them to be more handsome and more intelligent than all of the young men in all of Babylon. And so they rose to places of authority. And uh, it didn't include Daniel, which has always kind of confused me. Daniel's nowhere in this story, but it comes in Daniel's book. Um, Because at the end of chapter 2, the king was so pleased with Daniel that he elevated him to such a place of authority that uh, basically what theologians believe is Daniel would travel throughout the empire and uh, would make sure that everything was to King Nebuchadnezzar's liking. So probably Daniel was out of town when this happened. (laughs) It's kind of funny, huh? So so the rule is, the, the call goes out, bow down to this image, government rulers, or you will be executed. Notice verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you were commanded to do. Now remind, just remember that the government of Babylon would have included people of other nations and languages like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because this is how they worked. We take the best and the brightest of them, we teach them what we know, and then we allow them to rule and and maybe we even replant them back in their homelands or in other places. This is what you are to do. Verse 5. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be, throwing, be thrown into a blazing furnace. And again, this is so foreign to us. We just don't deal with things like this in our country and in our day and age. But this was not at all foreign to these people at this time in this place. As a matter of fact, this King Nebuchadnezzar, was maybe the most evil, wicked man to have walked the earth at this point in history. Absolutely depraved. As a matter of fact, we might translate it, we may experience his wickedness in the face of this man, who again is, it's no, it's, it, it's no exaggeration. Saddam Hussein believed that he was King Nebuchadnezzar reincarnate. He studied King Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to be like King Nebuchadnezzar. That's how wicked this this king was. We can get a feel for what Saddam Hussein did and maybe think backwards. So so the, the command goes out. As soon as you hear the worship band, you either bow or you face execution. And um The reality was that this was not unlike King Nebuchadnezzar. He was evil and he was wicked, and he had a track record for this. As a matter of fact, jot down in your notes or somewhere in in the margins of your Bible, Jeremiah 29, 22. Jeremiah 29, 22, if you look that up later, you'll find that there's by name mentioned two men who King Nebuchadnezzar had executed by throwing them into a furnace. Two totally separate men, Zedekiah and Ahab are their names. So this wasn't foreign. But even as a kid, I'm kind of wondering, why in the world would you execute someone by throwing them into a furnace? I mean, what, who even has a furnace in the middle of the plain of Dura? I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like a sword or um, any other modes of execution. He just had a furnace laying around? What's that all about? Any thoughts on that? Where did he get the furnace? He, well, yeah, he built it. <laughs> just to execute these people who wouldn't bow? 
Did he build the furnace before people didn't bow because he expected people not to bow? Because if so, that's even more insane. <laughs> he had to build it before he could burn it, I think is what someone said. No, he had a furnace because he built an image and layered it in gold. And so in order to get the gold, he had to smelt ore. He had to melt down rocks in order to purify them and have gold to plate the... Well, that kind of makes sense now, doesn't it? So let me show you what this smelting furnace might have looked like. Um, this is, a, this is a, a best guess. Probably this would have been built into the side of a mountain or if you, this was a plane, so maybe no mountain, so maybe a structure built up around it. But the way this worked was the top where the smoke is coming out is where they would drop the ore, the material to be melted. And then the bottom where the little ramp goes up is where they would wheel in the, the fuel for the fire, the wood or, or whatever they were using to create heat. And because this was a smelting furnace used to melt the gold that then plated the image, this sucker was hot. Does anybody happen to know off the top of their head how hot you have to have a fire to melt gold? Any guesses? 12,000 is close. It's actually somewhere, depending on the kind of gold and what's mixed in with it, between 1,500 and 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the story, the text tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was so mad when these boys didn't bow. I'm giving away the story now if, if you don't know it, but we'll get there. That he had the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. So this furnace, the point of that number seven times, this furnace was hot. And what better way to execute someone than to throw them into a furnace that'll make them crispy flakes as soon as, I mean, before they're even in the fire. All right, you with me? So this is, this is what's going on. We're, we're filling in some blanks here. So, uh, so the worship band hits the cue, all the instruments play, and, and all across the plain of Dura, government officials hit the ground and, and bow to the image because they know Nebuchadnezzar is not playing. This is not a joke. This isn't him doing a Twitter thrashing early in the morning. That means absolutely nothing. We're going to die if we don't bow. All across the plain, hundreds, maybe thousands, we don't really know how many government officials bow. Except three. Now, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, how in the world, in the pre-photography age, no video cameras, no drones, no you know, no one with a, a, a zoom lens. How in the world did anybody know that three young men didn't bow? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it probably wouldn't be incredibly obvious. Scripture gives us a hint into that. Verse 8. At this time, while everyone else is bowed except for these three, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. This word denounced in Hebrew uh, is, is kind of an idiom. It literally translated means ate the pieces of the Jews. Or we might say they came and they chewed out the Jews in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. But this is more than just tattletaling. Every theologian I studied on this point says that this was another case of racial hatred aimed at the Hebrews. They were jealous of these three young men because they were at the top of the rung. And here they were ignoring King Nebuchadnezzar's command. Verse 13, the story continues. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? Well, he already knows the answer to that. There's been plenty of experience already. That you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to save you from my hand? So King Nebuchadnezzar throws down the gauntlet right in front of these three young men and shows us just again how insane he is. He asks what God will be able to save you from my hand And if he would look back just a few years, he would have his answer because their God saved them from being killed in Jerusalem. Their God set them up as the the, the most handsome, intelligent young men in all of the nation, even, even against King Nebuchadnezzar's wishes. It was their God that had revealed not only the meaning of his dream in chapter two, but actually what his dream was because he had forgotten altogether. If he had any sense at all, he would know what God would be able to save them from his hand. But he'd forgotten. And so he threw down the gauntlet in a fit of rage and gave him one last chance. Will you bow or will you not bow? And just before the conductor can start up the band, the boys chime in, or the young men chime in, verses 16 through 18. And I like the way the message handled these, so I'm going I'm to read it from the message. Your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up, O king. But even if he doesn't, and i got to be honest, when I hear the boys respond like this, on the one hand, I'm kind of laughing. You know, it's funny. Funny. You're, you're brave. But I want to say to the boys, what is your deal? What do you mean even if God doesn't save you? Do we have to repeat it again? He saved you in Jerusalem. He saved you in chapter 1 with the whole food ordeal. He saved you in chapter 2 where you all were going to be killed because King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember his dream and didn't know what it meant. What do you mean even if God doesn't save you? He saved you every point up to now. Why wouldn't he save you now? Get some faith, boys. And yet as the story continues, I kind of get the sense that it wasn't faith that they were lacking, but it was understanding in which they excelled. I think these three young men understood something that we often miss. It's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of wisdom and understanding. First of all, I think they understood, number one, that faithful obedience is our responsibility the God's responsibility. Faithful obedience. We are responsible to be faithful to what God has called us to do. We let God take care of the rest. We let God take care of what comes out of our obedience to him. Let's read the rest of verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set I think the young men's have their fingers on something that we, at least in Western Western American Christianity, 
sometimes forget. And that's that God is not nearly as concerned with the outcome as he is with the faithfulness of his children. Let me say that another way. For God, the win is us being obedient to what he has called us to do, not what happens when we are obedient. To say it one more way, God waves the W. God waves the W when we are faithful. Regardless of what happens, come what may, for God the win is, the W is, when his children say, I'm going to do this God's way. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what circumstances may come. I am going to do this God's way. He's more concerned with us doing right than how things turn out. So maybe your manager, your boss, or your, the whole company that you work for stands for things that you stand against. Beloved, unless God has given you a direct divine revelation that he wants you to stand against in their face what they stand against, your responsibility is to do what he's told you to do in Scripture, to work hard, to go to work every day and put in an honest day's work, to treat your coworkers with love and respect, to make sure that every word that comes from your mouth is only what's beneficial, only what's profitable for building others up. It's not your job to tell your company or your boss or your manager that they're wrong. It's your job to be faithful to what God has called you to do and who he's called you to be. He's more concerned with you doing right than he's concerned with how this whole thing shakes out. Or, uh, or let's think on a slightly bigger scale. God is less concerned with how we respond to the way government totally screws up the issue of immigration than he is with how we treat the immigrants among us. And I know I'm not getting political. This isn't a political rant. This is a scriptural teaching. God's more concerned that we're obedient to Scripture. Scriptures like Leviticus 19, 33 and 34 that says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. And just one more example. God expects that, that we'll be most concerned with obeying Deuteronomy 10, 19, which says, Love those who are foreigners. God's most concerned that we're obedient, not the outcomes of a political situation or an argument or a fight between Republicans and Democrats. He wants us to be faithful to his word, to do what he has explicitly told us to do. No interpretation needed. Just do what he's called us to do. Let's bring it home. Men, maybe your wife is being stubborn and making it incredibly difficult for you to love her. You know what? God has still made his expectations of you clear, husbands. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and lay down your life for her. 
even if she is being stubborn and thick-headed and unreasonable. And women, just because maybe your husband has done or is doing things that make him difficult to love, doesn't mean that you're relieved of the expectation to submit to and honor your husband. This is God's desire. He's most concerned that we be faithful to what he's called us to do. He cares more about that than what comes in the end. God wants us to be faithful and let him deal with the outcome. I think these young Hebrew boys got that. We read that in verse 18. It doesn't matter what you do, Neb. We're not going to bow because God said we don't worship images. I think they also understood, number two, that God prefers delivering his children through hardship not saving us from suffering. God prefers delivering us through hardship, not saving us from suffering. You know, we, we do ourselves a huge disservice when we think that God's goal is to make us comfortable and happy and satisfied with an easy life and a nice retirement plan and children who are always yes sir and yes ma'am and what else can I do for you? That's not God's greatest concern. As a matter of fact, God's greatest goal is to make us more like Jesus. And what do we celebrate about Jesus? That he suffered at the hands of sinful men. Now, if God's goal is to make us more like Jesus, why in the world would we ever pray, oh God, make us comfortable, happy, and wealthy? God's greatest goal is to make us more like Jesus. And he uses suffering to do it. We become more like Jesus through hardship than through comfort. And if you think I'm just making this up, write down these three texts. There's only, there's, I mean, there's many in Scripture, but here's three you can check. In James, Romans, and 1 Peter. And you'll see that God is very specific. He prefers to deliver us through hardship rather than save us from suffering. Sometimes he saves us from suffering, but he always uses hardship to deliver us and make us more like Jesus Christ. Notice what happens in verses 24 and 25. Now, before we read that, this reality that I'm talking about is a hard one for us. It's a hard one in this day and age to realize that God works most in my life when I'm suffering, when things are horrible and hard and I can't stand them. Like, so you're telling me I follow a God who, who wants me to suffer, who wants things to be hard for me? That's a hard teaching for us to grasp. But what I want you to catch is what God does when we face hardships and sufferings. Verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Why, certainly, your majesty. He said, Look! I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And I'll be if one of them doesn't look like a son of the gods. When we face hardship, beloved, the reality is that God just doesn't send help. God comes to walk with us. This is what David tells us in Psalm 23. 
Say it with me when it comes to mind. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is what the incarnation is all about. God didn't just want to send a Savior. He wanted to be the Savior. And so Jesus put flesh on, and John says he pitched his tent in our neighborhood. He became one of us. This is what happens here. When these three young men, because of their faithfulness, are thrown into the furnace, and God says, well, I guess I better send my son. And so before anyone ever knew who Jesus was, before he had a name, before he had a body, he took on some kind of flesh and was in the fire with those three young men, protecting them and having their own little fire boogie-woogie. I mean, I don't know what they were doing in there, but... The reality is that when we face hardship and suffering, God cares. And he cares so much that he walks with us. And he's present in the midst of our hardship. And the hardest thing for me as a pastor is I look in your eyes and see your faces every Sunday is I have no idea what's going to happen when you walk out these doors before you walk back in next week. And we see it week after week after week. Someone calls and says, a family member died. Or I had some tests and they came back and they're not so encouraging. Or pastor, I just don't know what to do. I can't get away from this addiction. Everything I've tried, it's come back and it's more fierce now. Pastor, I've been praying for my kids for years. You don't even know. It's in those moments, beloved, that God says, I'm with you. I'm here in the fire with you. And if you will allow me, I will deliver you through this hardship. And if you'll allow me, if you'll remain faithful and trust me, I'll give you a glimpse into something I'm doing that I won't do any other way. And you'll get a front row seat. Thirdly, I think that these young men understood that God's greatest concern is always his glory. God's greatest concern in your and my life is making us like Jesus, but on, in the grand scheme of things and in the events and occurrences of history and of our lives, his greatest concern is his glory. And scripture teaches this time and time again. Let me just give you one evidence. We're going to read some verses from Isaiah. And I'm going to ask you to read the yellow parts. Let's start now. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. When God is choosing how he's going to work in us and through us and around us, the greatest filter he uses is how will I be most glorified? What's going to bring the most glory to my own name? And so God always works in such a way to bring him the greatest glory. And notice what happens in this story. Follow along in, on the screens or in your text as I read verses 26 through 29. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, 
Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Rakshak and Benny came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Verse 28, the Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their own lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. And in this day and time, in their language, that's about the most glory that King Nebuchadnezzar could give to another god. I'm not sure that that's what God desired, that your people be killed and they're destroyed. But King Nebuchadnezzar was saying, their god be glorified above all others. And his next statement is the truest thing he could have said. For no other god can save in this way. No other God saves by standing in the fire of hardship with his people. No other God delivers his followers through hardship instead of saving them from suffering. Beloved, the reality was that God could have intervened at any point in this story. He could have intervened way back in 605 when Nebuchadnezzar marched on Jerusalem. He could have intervened when when Nebuchadnezzar thought, hey, I'll set up the image. He could have intervened while it was being built. He could have intervened when when Nebuchadnezzar put the law out uh, among the government officials. He could have intervened when the band started playing the first time. He could have intervened when, when they stoked the fire to throw the three boys in. But God didn't intervene any of those times because God always works for his greatest glory. And he knew that there would be no way to have King Nebuchadnezzar proclaim what King Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed in these verses unless the fire happened, unless the boys went through the hardship and the suffering. And the same is true for us. And some of you have been praying for things. You've been praying for for children, adult children, for years that they would come back to the Lord, and they haven't yet. And I want to say, don't grow weary. Do not grow weary. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Remain faithful. Don't bend your convictions. Love your children and pray for their salvation. I don't know why God hasn't answered you yet. But I know that God always works for his greatest glory. And that there's a greater glory yet to be revealed in your child that you're praying for. And some of you are so bad in debt, so sideways financially, and you've asked God to help, you've asked for more work, you've asked for a raise, and you're going, where is God? And I don't know. I don't know why he's waiting. 
other than Scripture teaches us, God always works to make us more like Jesus, and he always works for his greatest glory. And so be faithful to what he's called you to do. Be faithful with your finances. Be a steward. Tithe and give and bless others and, and, and pay your creditors and make sure your bills are up to date. Do the things God has called you to do and wait and see what happens. Because when God stands in the fire with you and when you're faithful, God is glorified in your life in a way I can't even describe or predict. And your marriage may be on the rocks now, but at some point, if you remain faithful and you do what God has called you to do and you trust him, people will look and they will say, look at Bob and Molly. They were on the brink of divorce and how could she ever take him back after what he did? How can he even put up with her? But you remain faithful and you trust God and at some point, your marriage, I believe, will be an example to others because God will stand in the hardship with you. And he'll make something beautiful that he can't unless you're faithful through the hardship. And no matter what you face this week, what you're facing now, this is true. And the only way you do that, the only way you stand in your furnace and wait for God to show up is if you're willing to surrender your expectations of how God has to work in your story. Instead of thinking about what God needs to do, focus on being faithful. Focus on becoming more like Jesus. Focus on trusting God to be glorified in whatever way he knows is best. And ask him to help you see him standing in the fire with you. I started this morning by telling you about Pastor Chris and Bill when Pastor Chris heard that Bill had died um, and that he was asked to do the funeral, he called the family together. And of course, among the family were Bill's son and daughter and his brother James, who wanted nothing to do with Christians or the church or pastors. But in this little meeting, Pastor Chris said to the family, after I'm done talking at Bill's funeral, would you like for me to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ? James, Bill's brother, hated everything about the church, everything about pastors and Christians. But before Chris could even put the question mark on his question, James said, absolutely. He didn't believe it. He didn't believe in the gospel. He didn't want the gospel. But he loved his brother Bill, and he knew the best way to honor Bill's life was to share the gospel. So the day of the funeral came. Uh, Pastor Chris stood up. He talked about Bill, and at the end of his talk, he shared the gospel. And wouldn't you know it, when Pastor Chris put the call out for who'd like to receive Jesus Christ, James was the first one to stand to his feet. And James became a follower of Christ that day in 2014. And not only James... But Bill's son and daughter became followers of Christ. And they started worshiping at the same place that Bill had come back to Jesus. And to my knowledge, to this day, they still worship there. But you know what had to happen? Bill had to die. In order for God's glory to be revealed the most fully, Bill had to be willing to surrender his desire of how God would work. And he left this earth not knowing what God was going to do. 
but trusting that God would be glorified in the best way that God can. And friends, this is the challenge for us. Are we willing to surrender our expectations of how and when God will work? What I'd like to do as we close today is I'd like for us together to pray aloud a prayer of surrender. Um, We're going to put this prayer on the screen in a minute. Um, But here's how it's going to work. I'm going to open our prayer time, and we're just going to start with a a, a few moments of silence. And in that silence, I would encourage you in your mind to pray to God and and tell him what circumstances you're praying about today. He already knows, but, but tell him anyway. This is the circumstance I'm praying about. And then together, we're going to pray aloud. You can read it off the screen, or it'd probably be easier. I'll just say it, and you can repeat it after me. We're going to pray aloud a prayer of surrender. And when I say we're going to pray aloud, what I mean by that is we're not praying silently in our minds. We're not whispering or using library voices. We are going to pray as a congregation aloud a prayer of surrender. As if we were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing nose to nose with Nebuchadnezzar saying, we will not give in to this circumstance. We will not be had. We will be faithful to God and trust him for the outcome. So I'm going I'm to invite you um, if you are willing, um, I'm actually going to kneel here at the front. If you want to come to the front and kneel, you can. Or if you want to kneel at your pew, you're welcome to do that. Um, but I'm going to start us with a few moments of silence. And then together, I'd ask you to repeat after me prayer of surrender. If you'd like to come forward, do it now. Let's pray. Let's lift our voices together. Heavenly Father, I confess that you are God and I am not. I surrender to you my expectations of how you will work in my story. Please help me to be faithful. Deliver me through this hardship. And do whatever it takes to bring glory to your name. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who stands in the fire with me. Amen. If you'd like to come and pray with someone about whatever hardship you're facing, I'll be here. Pastor Joel will be here. And we'd be honored to pray with you. In the meantime, would you stand? And I'd like for us to bless one another. Even if God doesn't work the way that you want, may you be faithful. May you see God's presence in the fire with you and may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with grace.